welcome to iPhono. Hey everybody, welcome to Sunday. It is episode 38 of iPhono. We got a bit of a two-man show today, a one-on-one, mano-a-mano, with none other than Jeff Budzinski. How's it going? It's going great. <laughs> I'm, uh, I've never been so ready to start a two-man show. I'm always ready for those two-man shows. It's a good time. Um, but yeah, either way, we do have a lot to talk about. Um, do. Yes. We have... Amongst those things is the Super Bowl victory of our very own Philadelphia <laughs> Eagles. Congratulations to the Philadelphia Eagles and all of its fans for a Super Bowl victory. And we do actually have a bit of... This isn't just to talk about sports. Also, we have a bit of technology that was being uh, sampled during the Super Bowl. Um, so Verizon was streaming Super Bowl 52 in VR over 5G for a grand total of probably 20 people. But the, regardless, the fact that it worked as well as it did was pretty awesome. So Absolutely. Yeah. I, I want to know how you get on that list. Yeah, absolutely. So... <laughs> The, the fact that they did get it to work, though, is proof of concept that this is something that is that we're going to see probably going forward, maybe even publicly available for at least some kind of preliminary, um, like open enrollment type beta thing in Super Bowl 53 or maybe 54. But um, so what happened was what had happened was um, <laughs> so they started in November when engineers and support staff was installing equipment in the stadium suite for in the stadium's Verizon suite. And um, they set up a couple of, they called them Blackmagic 4K Ursa cameras in the seats immediately below um, the booth. And then spent the next uh, bit of time installing more equipment and running preliminary tests. So what it was is if you uh, used this, um, this VR video, which was shot over, um, it was using a Gear VR for an, a Galaxy S8 that um, various people would get to wear throughout the game. It would put you in the Verizon booth, which had two televisions streaming a 1080p and a 720p version of the stream. And you could walk around and like check out the fridge and like it was as if you were in the booth at the game. But like the cool part, like wasn't even the fact that you were there. It was the fact that if you walked over to the end of the booth where the opening was, you could watch the game from the view that the Verizon reps had at the stadium, which is pretty awesome. And yeah. We've talked about this in, in past episodes and the fact that like you'll be able to use virtual reality to attend sport games and like get good seats. Like imagine if this was like say during like an NHL game or even more um even more relevant the Olympics, which they actually are testing some of that, um, be able to get a front row seat for your favorite event or sport without having to actually be at the event. So yeah, with something like the Olympics, where it's potentially even likely to be an international event that not everybody can afford, but would love to watch on TV, as we're yeah. seeing with the Winter Olympics right now. Mm-hmm. I think this is this is so so cool. I'm all about this. I know there's been a number of different uh, uses of VR already, with things like streaming basketball games to the consumers, and I think some some like soccer games have been streamed, things like that. But when it's something that's is um, relevant as a Super Bowl where it's being streamed live um, in 4K video. Yeah. <laughs> that is some insane tech coming to you. Um, I can remember not too long ago being frustrated, but accepting with the buffering of 480p 
videos on yep. YouTube when yep. YouTube was new. Like, and now we're getting 4K live video streams of one of the most popular sporting events in the world. Yeah, what was headset. once the default video quality for YouTube is now considered essentially a punishment if you have to watch a video <laughs> in that quality in yes. today. Yeah, it's 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 like it's amazing how far we've come, and the fact that. <laughs> The fact that they're able to do 4K over 5G is incredible, and it's something that definitely can't be supported in LTE. If you right. did that, like you wouldn't be able to make phone calls or anything like that. It would just choke up the whole network. But yeah. Like, even um, if you could stream it, if that's, that's even if you could do it. But it's... And getting 4K live is a whole different feat in itself, which is like even more incredible. I, th I could... Um... This is definitely a power play for Verizon, kind of establishing their dominance. We can pull this off, and the infrastructure isn't there, but it could be. Yeah, like we, they're testing it with a limited, um, you know, audience, obviously. So it's not like every single person you see can is is using the same network and the same architecture. So there's not that much taxing it necessarily yet. Yeah, yeah. But, and um, before we move into a little bit about five G and off of VR. Uh, the CBC, uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Channel, mm -hmm. they have been doing uh, virtual reality of the Olympic Games so far. And if you can find the APK, this is for anybody who's not in Canada. If you can find the APK and set yourself up with a Canadian VPN, then you are able to experience virtual reality Olympic events. Like you can be the skier or you can be the snowboarder. And like get a view of the game in virtual reality. So there is VR that's being done currently in the Olympic Games, and like the article has mentioned, they did do some with um, the NBA and uh, MLB doing some games in virtual reality as well. So it is happening in the wild. It's just um, you need a specific broadcast to do it, or you have to know where to look in order to find those streams. And it's cool. I, I'm gonna try that today. It, it looks really cool. I did the little sample of it, and like it's like the YouTube in cardboard where you can like move your finger around to, to like look and like point the camera in different ways. It's really cool. I want to try it. I wonder what if there's gonna be any name evolution like karaoke. I think means like empty orchestra. If there's something for like <laughs> empty amphitheater, or empty sports stadium. <laughs> That'd be cool if it, like you could see the game going on in the center of the field, but you're in an empty stadium. Yeah, or or what's it actually going to do to the physical stadium if people don't attend as much? It's definitely, yeah, interesting food for thought. Yeah, I could I could see it helping because I'm sure that there's going to be people who want to be at the game and experience the drunk people screaming <laughs> obscenities behind them in person. But I think that'll I think that it could do it could benefit people being able to watch their favorite sports game at the stadium like without pants on or watch without being arrested. Attend your favorite Super Bowl victory riot yeah. on a main street in your underwear, <laughs> yeah. which already happens. So now you can do it from your. Yeah, house. I wouldn't doubt that actually happened in Philly this week. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but five G is definitely huge, and Verizon so far has been the only uh, trial has ran the only trial of residential five G networks um, with a plan to roll out an official version in Sacramento later this year. So we are going to start seeing 5G over the next couple of years in the wild, which is really exciting. And the capabilities that we've seen in both CES and around the world from various sample sets of what it's capable of um, is incredible. And I Definitely. think it's going to open the door to uh, eliminating more wires because it was essentially as good as Ethernet in some tests. So, right. 
but absolutely that's incredible and kind of matt i was just kind of jumping topics here we were talking a little bit about vr and 5g mm-hmm. but kind of uh switching lanes uh, what do you think about the new vaunt from intel's uh ar equipped glasses they're the first glasses that i've seen that don't make you look like a jerk when you wear them or like a bro like or as google has called them glass holes yes Um, (laughs) so they they look like normal glasses the only difference is they have some extra hardware on the i think they're the arms of the glasses i'm not sure of the exact term of that but i think that's about right yeah and um some extra hardware around like the frame itself so it's a little bit thicker than a normal pair of glasses but they're cool they're really cool and uh, it's the first time that like a less is more approach has been taken to this kind of smart wear. You know, it's, it's, it is bulkier than your, you know, standard sleek pair of glasses, like the ones you're wearing right now. Yeah. But it's nothing insane. In my opinion, maybe you get a couple of centimeters extra thickness here and there. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure what the actual weight itself is. I, I think it says it's, I don't see super, super light, super light because they needed to weigh in under 50 grams. Yeah. So, I mean, could be worse. Um, yeah. No, it, it's very, very nice to see that they're considering both weight and like the appearance as well, yeah. on top of getting the tech to work. And... Yeah, they they wanted it to be like, I think the term was like having no social footprint or something like something of that nature. Basically, where they don't want you wearing these things to make your interactions with others different from it like an outsider's perspective necessarily mm-hmm. um yeah. and the one good thing that's that's important about these unlike some of the other piece of technology is they do offer the op- the ability to have some flex to them like normal glasses so they're a little bit more comfortable and they can conform to more unique head sizes much better than say like the google glass and um because the google glass they added not only did they look ridiculous but they added an extra 33 grams onto whatever glasses you already had if you needed glasses right so the fact that they're able to do this with um with these is incredible and also you these can also be fitted with prescription lenses too so these could be your daily glasses which is so cool yeah and um so the the way the tech works which uh, we hadn't gotten into is that um it's a simple heads-up display in your peripheral vision, so it shows up just below your line of sight. Um, and if you look down, you can see the notifications, and if you look up, they disappear. So it's not intrusive. And um, what it does is it projects a low-power laser into the back of your retina, which um, allows you to see the image um, unobtrusively and in, in a safe way, too, because a lot of people are going to think that, oh, I'm having lasers fired into my eyes. This This can't be safe over the long term but uh the intel has assured uh, the verge that it is a safe laser um it's an interesting phrase a safe laser <laughs> yeah i know it does it does you know instantly make you cringe a little bit having a laser shine in your eyes um but it does say that the, the it's a red monochrome image uh it's in the neighborhood of 400 to 150 pixels and it's uh reflected actually um back into your retina as you said matt Mm -hmm. and since that image actually lands on your retina which is in the back of your eyeball it's the great like perfect focus for you to view yeah and yeah and for anybody who knows a bit more about lasers and is curious as to the exact specifications of this of the of what's being put into your eyes it's classified as a class one laser um 
evidently it's such a low power that they didn't even need to have it certified. So it's something that is cleared beyond safety for people's eyes. And they said it's so low power that it's at the very bottom end of a class one laser. Right. Like it just barely is class one. <laughs> so just enough to work. Yeah. And uh, um, I'm impressed with this. It looks really good. I mean, there's a lot more to come with these two. Um, mm -hmm. From what I read in my researching of this topic, that they're, they, it has an accelerometer um, and compass, so it can like tell what head gestures the user's making, but it's also um, going to be equipped with an, a microphone in the future and uh, ideally would also come with a voice assistant. Um, so that smart home device that you love or your assistant on your smartphone of your choosing could be coming to your glasses next mm -hmm. um, when it can directly impact what information is delivered to your eyes from like a hands-off kind of approach that kind of mixture of technologies is something that we haven't really seen before and i think it's going to be pretty revolutionary yeah and uh another important thing to note is intel says that they're targeting an 18-hour battery life so that means it will be an all-day thing so in much in the same way that you would use your smartwatch, you would just leave it on the charger overnight to recharge. So that's good that it's um, also, it's good that it will last the whole day. Um, but if obviously when it breaks or when it dies, then it will still become a normal pair of glasses. So yeah. much in the way that when an escalator breaks, it just becomes another staircase. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, so it'll be it'll be cool to see where this goes with, um, you know, what what augmented reality technology they decide to throw in here. Um, mm -hmm. It looks like we're getting closer and closer to that day where you can walk down the street and check out the menu from that restaurant around the corner just yeah. by looking that way. Um, yeah, this could be huge for AR and making this a bit more public, especially if they can come in at a competitive price point with this. Right. That and they use the competitive term lightly because there's not many things in this industry yet. Yeah, so. you're almost competing with the various industries which make up the components of this one technology. Yeah. So like if this if this can be cheaper than the eyeglasses you're already buying, if this can be cheaper than whatever augmented reality device you're going to be using. Mm -hmm. um, add those things up, and if it's if it all still makes sense to the consumer, then. It seems like this is definitely a viable market. Yeah, it would be interesting to see if they end up partnering with a eyeglass maker like Warby Parker or some other brand like that. That would be interesting to see. I would think they'd do that with a few. Yeah, um, I'd be pretty surprised if Ray Ban wasn't on that list as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. But we'll see, it does affect, I guess, the actual design of those glasses. So maybe we'd have some eyeglass designers who wouldn't want to modify what they already do. Yeah, maybe. I mean, we saw uh, with with smartwatches, uh, Fossil. Uh, Burberry and all these other companies making their way into the smartwatch market. So I wonder if it's going to be a similar push because this technology, I think, may offer more benefit to users than, say, a smartwatch, for example. Yeah. But the one thing is it does not have a vibration motor. You have to look for the notification when you want it, which is kind of nice, but it could cause you to miss some notifications here and there. But oh, Maybe if you're... Uh too occupied to notice maybe you shouldn't notice yeah and uh also if one of the things that you're occupied with happens to be fixing bugs in your security breaches <laughs> then um you may be a mix panel employee because there was a recent breach in mix panels data um collection software and 
this company does data analytics or, or analytics provider um, through a through an update recently made to the react library the react javascript library um, it caused an unintentional uh, shift in the behavior of their software itself so what happened in terms of the issue was that um, they were it began leaking password fields into another framework and um, that's obviously not intentional <laughs> by design no. it's typically a bad thing when passwords are being leaked by the actual fields in various events on the, web, <laughs> on the web form so it was being leaked using their auto track functionality um, causing that to send the values of those hidden password form fields uh, so they actually were really, uh, in my opinion, I thought they responded very well. Um, they It took them a while to catch it, which is the only thing that you could really argue. Um, I don't know if you wanted to, I don't know if you had any information you wanted to share on this or not, but um, it's, a, yeah. it's a pretty good response in my opinion. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. Um, I guess to kind of hone in on what you're saying, it's their, their own testing and development teams didn't catch this. It was actually a customer alerting Mixpanel, which led to its detection. Um, but it did seem like within less than a month, um, they you know, sent out notifications to all, all of its clients informing of the issue. Yeah. Um, and yeah, this this is from Mixpanel. Their, their company, which has uh, a service that helps with user interactions on web and mobile applications, so basically, it's to um, allow those websites or mobile applications to know how their users are interfacing with that application or website, okay. and then report that back to the company. So this this is definitely something you don't want <laughs> in a business <laughs> venture like that. If you uh, are working with Mixpanel to help improve the way your business runs, you certainly don't want it to leak passwords of your users. Yeah. Um, but this, yeah, was caught pretty quickly. It says, you know. Um, the CEO of Mixpanel uh, just says, you know, we didn't catch it. It's that simple, right. which is pretty much how it goes. So you, not shocking there. Yeah. But. And to, to give our listeners a full um, time frame of this breach. So the, the particular library was implemented back in August of 2016 by Mixpanel. Um, and the update to the React JavaScript framework occurred in March 2017. So it's been... It's been in the wild for a little while, or for quite some time now, but um, they were notified by a customer who noticed this uh, leak happening on January 5th of this year, and they had released a preliminary patch to um, to implement a server-side filter to securely discard that data as soon as they get it, and later then they were able to quickly refine that to uh, solve the last remaining edge cases that was on january 9th so within four days of the customer notifying them they had a patch released for their software so it was a it was a very good response and they also in this TechCrunch article they have a sample email sent to any of the customers who were believed to be impacted by this and it is an extremely comprehensive email offering a large amount of information such as the root cause the estimated impact um they even listed the particular products of the customer receiving the email um, they even listed out which particular services that they had with mixpanel that were impacted as well as offering um, 
as well as offering uh, information that they're going to be conducting full privacy reviews going forward, including security audits, creating new tools around this data collection, and um, implementing data filtering and detection platforms with which to prevent this from go happening going forward. So not only did they react and solve the problem, but they also um, proactively attempted to correct any potential issues going forward, whether it comes from a framework or from their own code. So yeah. I was Speaking impressed. Of, I, I was also impressed. And that's a, a very good recap there. Um, one thing I would say is that this auto track feature, which is one of the culprits here, was launched in 2016. Mm -hmm. And uh, it appears that a change to the that open source JavaScript library React, um, which occurred in 2017 yeah, uh, is, is where that mix up started happening. So, you know, it, even when you're going forward with new changes, you still have to look back at how previously imp implemented features and software updates, uh, how those work together. So yep. if, if you're providing an application or service, keep that in mind. Don't just skip over those release notes necessarily. Yeah. And uh, we're going to see this happen more often, I think, because it, this was, when you look at it from what it was worth, they said that less than 25% of their customers were impacted, and they said they noted they noted approximately 4% of their projects suffered from a privacy gap. So it was right. a small defect, but that being said, this was more or less what you could frame as an honest mistake. Yeah. Um, something that it was, it, you, and it's hard to predict changes to a framework that you have no visibility into, even if it is open source. Um, that would mean simply that if you're going to be using the latest versions of frameworks that are relied on open source projects, then you would need to do a full in-depth analysis on what those changes did to your particular software. And implementing that type of a step could prevent these issues going forward, which is important, I think, to uh, note from anyone who is implementing an open source framework in their project. So absolutely agree. Note to programmers everywhere, please. Um, please do formal reviews on updates to get the scope of your changes that are happening, whether it's from you or whether it's from the framework you're relying on. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, some other news regarding unexpected changes. <laughs> <laughs> There's uh, apparently in a 24-hour time period, 5,000 Android devices have been conscripted into mining botnet. Uh, so there's like an infection basically is targeting Android devices, um, which have port 5555 open. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, Matt, I don't know, do you have any take on this article here? Right. It's, uh, it's a cryptocurrency mining yes. um, malware. So Yeah, so um, port 555 is normally closed on Android devices, but um, a developer tool that many people will be familiar of known as ADB or the Android Debug Bridge opens that port. So anybody who currently is um, has Android or ADB debugging enabled on their device uh, could potentially be vulnerable to this. Um, and when it was scanned by NetLab's laboratory, they um, was scanned by infected devices from 2,750 unique IPs in the first 24 hours that it became active. So it's very fast moving. And it's through a open platform that is arguably used in a large number of phones. I know my phone has that open, for example. Um, I use the ADB debug bridge to push 
um, updates and APKs and things that I've done in, in my practice to my phone. So it's something that I have opened and I'll probably be closing it in the immediate future. Right. Um, and it's uh, once they're infected, they are sideloaded with an app that caused them to mine Monero, which is the, the cryptocurrency that is currently being run. And um, it's not it's not clear um, what it's ha what effect it has on devices, but I'm assuming it's going to definitely at least peg your CPU to 100 percent usage on the phone. And um, it has been important to note that in past cases, mining or Monero mining apps are so aggressive that they've been known to physically damage Android devices that they're running on. Oh um, and in the the linked article that uh, Ars Technica has, they show imagery of Android devices that are actually bloated from battery damage from uh from it's like it's almost like the phone is popping apart <laughs> like getting ready to explode from the inside yeah. so um if you notice your phone starting to do that chances are you're probably earning somebody some monero <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah it's it's a um it's it's a lot and the mining pool the apps are using to generate this coin shows they have a 24 average rate of 24-hour average rate of 7,880 hashes per second, which is, it's not big. Um, and they have generated about $3 worth of Monero, so it's not necessarily profitable. Yeah. Although, technically, it is because he's not using any of the power. Yeah, so. I'd also say yet, because yeah. um, disinfection also looks for you know other Android devices on the same network as the infected device. It also have that port uh, 5555 Android debug uh, bridge yeah. um, open so that basically it could spread itself. Um, and just like with an actual infection in the real world, uh, can spread around before you know it. And then that uh, hashes per second rate might go up quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. And um, also, the it's something else that's important to note that it's not clear how this is happening um although they have uh, provided a clue which is stating that some of the code relies on mirai which i don't know if you're familiar with the mirai botnet which was the huge botnet of chinese set-top boxes that were being used to attack companies um so that is um another hint so i think this wouldn't just necessarily impact android phones i think this could impact any android device with the ADB debug or Android debug bridge open. So this mm -hmm. could be TV boxes, smart TVs, potentially even refrigerators um, that could also be impacted. Anything running Android that has ADB enabled. So it's talking about other devices on like the same network. So I'm guessing this is done via wireless transmission of some sort. When you do Android debug bridge, I would think it would be like a USB tethering to your PC or mm -hmm. something like that for changes in program, but if this is done wirelessly in some sort, uh, it's definitely a different can of worms than a physical connection. Yeah, um, and I don't. And a lot of times when you get hit with an ADB request, you do get notified via a pop-up that says, "Would you like to approve this ADB request?" And usually on initial connection. So I don't know who's authorizing ADB requests that come out of the blue like that, but. Um, that's why. That's probably why it's only five thousand devices in twenty-four hours, and not millions of devices. Not, not all of the devices. Yeah. You, ADB. Because <laughs> I don't know too many people who just approve auth requests out of nowhere like that. So, that's that could just be me. But, 
uh, I will certainly be watching my phone for any kind of ADB alerts that come in. Sounds like it's for the best. Yeah. And um, it's it's just some another thing that we have to deal with in this. And we ever since we've even reported on web browsers that are mining cryptocurrency, it's something that we're just going to have to to deal with going forward. But um, there was a positive change to some Android phones that came out of this past week. Um, Google enabled their visual core for better photos being taken by third-party applications. Um, these are including Instagram, Snapchat, and WhatsApp. Um, so anybody who currently owns a Pixel 2, which is the only phone that currently operates this uh, visual core, um, it is noted that your image quality will improve drastically and you'll actually even potentially even notice some HDR image processing that happens after you take the photo. So, and I know that uh, myself and Jeff have seen this for ourselves in Snapchat, for example, and Inst and I've seen it in Instagram as well. Um, what would happen is you take a photo and typically in Snapchat, what it did on an Android device was it just screen grabbed the, the viewfinder. It didn't actually use your phone's camera to take an image. So the change that Google implemented was they opened a third-party API that is that can be implemented by any app developers with which to to access the actual camera hardware on the device. So anybody with a Google Pixel 2 taking photos now will actually notice some after-image processing once they capture a photo, which um, you're going to have major major improvements in uh, in quality on imagery uh, after taking any kind of image on these apps, which, um, like I had mentioned before, me and Jeff have noticed firsthand. And the Verge article uh, goes in, because this is going to be tough for people to initially spot without some side-by-side -side imagery, and The Verge actually has some really well-designed image sliders that show um, the differences between the visual core and without it, so... I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it and how you've noticed it on in your use cases, um, whether it be through Snapchat or any other third-party app. But it's been nothing but positive for me. Yeah, uh, I actually agree completely. I read this news before I saw it show up on my actual phone, um, which was interesting. So I was kind of testing. I was like, it doesn't seem like this is happening. And then I got my system update from Google, and then I got... Uh, updates to Snapchat, which people seem to be talking about, if you hadn't noticed. Um, and basically, I went to Snapchat this morning and took a picture, and it just looked like night and day quality compared to what I was used to seeing there in that app. And um, I, one of the, my favorite things about having this uh, Pixel 2 XL is how amazing its camera is. Um, I know you're aware, Matt, because you've taken some pictures on your <laughs> hikes or whatever kind of field trips you're going on, and the pictures look like they're taken with a legitimate, like, I don't know, a, a really nice camera. And yeah, they have been, but the camera's in your phone. So yeah. now, yeah. now you can uh, have another way to one up your your friends with your Instagram and Snapchat <laughs> <watch that> photos. <laughs> yeah, and, and maybe with this, um, once people start seeing, um, the higher the, the drastic increase in quality it would be interesting to see if perhaps celebrities adopt the pixel as their phone of choice for these social media platforms because i know some of them carry two phones around one is their primary and the other one is their social media phone so with the with this recent push to photo quality it'll be interesting to see if any of them who use android phones move to the pixel 2 
uh, in favor of this. Um, there is a little bit of a downside uh, to the the visual core. It's not all um, flowers and roses, even if you're only taking photos of flowers and roses. Uh, there are um, there it, it does um, pull a lot of detail out of what would otherwise be largely saturated and light flooded imagery or light deprived imagery. So they do have a second photo which shows a sunset and um, I don't know about you Jeff but to me the the without the the visual core it looks a bit more almost atmospheric and uh, there's a little like there's detail where it counts which I think is something that um, perhaps maybe implementing this visual core as a toggleable feature would be beneficial in the settings but um, I and this could probably also be corrected with filters as well, and I'm aware of that, but it just, in some cases, it's not all good because it does such a good job at pulling detail out of dark spots in the image, whereas it may not accurately convey the feeling of a sunset or something yeah. like that. So, so it definitely, I know what you mean when you're saying that. It, it makes it definitely more like visible where you can see detail, but it may not be a natural looking detail mm -hmm. or it may not capture what you saw as well. Yeah. Um, but there, there are a lot of different um, settings that you can tweak on settings like, uh, like you were mentioning, like saturation. If you had an issue with the saturation of what Google um, this visual core, pixel visual core did to your picture, you can tweak that back a little bit. Yeah. Um, so it's not like all is lost if you take advantage of this. Yeah. And even if it, like, you're working with more detail to begin with. So if, for example, you take an image from Snapchat and you save it, you have an overall higher quality image than you started with. Because I know there are some people who uh, use these um, third-party applications to take images over using the primary camera application as well. Right. Uh, and just as a as like an, a final note on this topic, it's important to mention that the visual core is only for third-party applications. When taking photos with the um, with the Google camera application. Uh, the stock camera app on the phone, it will use the main processor and just use normal HDR because that's good enough for the phone. Right. So this is only meant for third-party applications, and it's a it's a nice thing. It'd be cool to see like some uh, this could because having this extra detail could imp could enable third parties to work with potential AR stickers and things, and you may see some increased accuracy in Snapchat stickers and like those dog filters that go over your face right <laughs> <laughs> so the yeah, it's it's interesting definitely and i'm i'm gonna be keeping an eye on this and as seeing what it's like as different third-party applications roll it out so yeah and so keep keep yeah. your eyes peeled listeners yeah and, anybody uh, with a pixel too um check out snapchat or instagram or whatsapp so, definitely yeah um but uh while we have all this action going on over on the Android side of the fence. iPhone 10 users are reporting some issues, uh, particularly answering phone calls. So yeah. it looks like they're having trouble waking the phone up after the phone begins to receive a call. Yeah, so it, it could uh, you know delay your reaction. It may cause someone to hang up if you don't answer the call fast enough. Um, go figure. Users want to use their phones to talk on the phone. I didn't think that still, I didn't think that still happened. Well, hold up. What? But, yeah. <laughs> Everything before iPhone seven, maybe, but yeah, but it's 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 interesting because this also you can't tell who's calling you, so 
Like when when you go to pick your phone up and your screen will turn on, you have no idea who's actually calling you, and it could be an emergency call, and yes. you wouldn't be able to pick up right away until, for example, you were able to finally wake your screen. Um, it's it could be serious, and they they should be taking this seriously, um, but they the article as of this article which was reported on the 4th of february it's important to note that um there was no indication on the scale of the issue although it's common and it cannot be troubleshooted via a reboot of the device so it it leads me to believe that there's something going on in the os level of this which is yeah. waking the screen all the time i mean it it has to be right they've been pushing out os updates like every week almost there's i think they're up to 11.2.5 is the most recent one which we did cover a little last week about how you know it's integration with the home pod and some improvements to siri mm -hmm. but um you know the news of the ios 12 that's to come in the future that's supposed to be very stable um mm -hmm. and maybe they're not going to do as much with the actual um interface itself uh, as opposed to relying on how you can make it a more stable operating yeah. system for smartphone users. I would hope that something as, um, you know, crucial as being able to answer phone calls when you need to would be something they focus on. Yeah, and, and we've we've seen reports of uh, iPhone ten sales not doing as well as expected, and this certainly can't be helping their sales. I mean, it's probably not going to impact them that much. People who are going to buy an iPhone ten are going to buy an iPhone ten, and that's it. But... I'd imagine that anybody on the fence, whether they go with an iPhone 10 or an iPhone 8, seeing articles like this, along with the slew of issues that happened in stability earlier in its release, I'd imagine that this would be a bit of a push towards the 8 or the 8 Plus for them. And like you said, we did talk about um, new iOS updates, and perhaps we'll see this in 11.2.5 or 11.2 or 11.3. Or maybe it will be forced to wait all the way until iOS 12 when it's launched. Yeah, uh, to see this. So. I uh, this this has to be related to hardware, right? If it's only happening on the iPhone 10, so I'd assume it has something to do with the screen hardware. Yeah. Or yeah, I mean, they say that the the touchscreen is non-responsive for several seconds when there's an incoming call. So right. Um, so. It's just usually there's usually like a relay there where the phone picks up the signal that it's getting a call and then sends signal to turn that screen on and alert you of that and it seems like that's just not clicking the way it should be. Yeah, or it's delayed by a, a long, a longer, longer than expected period of time. So, right. Um, I'm, well, good luck to anybody with an iPhone 10. I hope that <laughs> they do resolve that soon because that is potentially a serious issue as we've talked about. Definitely. Um, there are some other serious issues that we have coming up in the show, though. Such Let's as, switch, uh, switching lanes. Yeah, such as China blocking the cryptocurrency, countering financial risks. So this, um, this kind of comes at the heels of a lot of credit card companies in the United States um, blocking the transactions uh, with cryptocurrency exchanges in order to buy. I know we've seen it from Discover, for an example. They no longer allow purchasing cryptocurrency um, from exchange services, but China is... Uh, just blocking it all together. They're pulling the, their standard approaches where they just block it until they prove that it's a good service. Yeah, these so. are not just banks doing this. Um, you know, like you were saying, Matt, in the U.S., you have Bank of America, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, Capital One, and Discover banning customers from purchasing cryptocurrency. Yeah. Um, in the U.K., 
you have the MBNA, Halifax, and Bank of Scotland, uh, as well as you know Lloyd's Banking Group. There's there's a lot of this happening with to see an entire country <laughs> moving yeah. against this. That's saying something. Yeah, and as the uh, as this article goes to state, it's a it's a blanket embargo on crypto to fiat trading and ICOs in place since September 2017. So uh, mixed signals given over the status of mining coming from China. They've kind of danced with the idea of blocking the entire thing altogether. But um, I think that this push to block these cryptocurrency exchange services and ICOs, I think is going to be, I think we're, we, we may see a market reaction. Uh, that being said, I'm no Warren Buffett of cryptocurrency or anything <laughs> like that. But I feel like that every time China or Asia in, in any way, because we've seen it from South Korea also announces anything against cryptocurrency, the market does indeed dip by a little bit. Certainly, so, and coming at the coming at the tail end of that, um, what some people are calling a crash and what some people are calling a correction, um, it's not timed well to have this news uh, to have this news break for anybody who is a holder of cryptocurrency. Yeah, apparently they're not holding the news back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man, but um, I um, we'll see. I mean, this is kind of par for the course for China when it comes to services that they're not familiar with. So. Um, and I don't think crypto. I don't think this is going to impact cryptocurrency going anywhere anytime soon. Um, but it's definitely interesting, and it does uh, impact the market as a whole. So it's definitely worth making a note of. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But we do also um, we have some news. If if for some reason you uh, do get suffered or you do suffer a major loss in the crypto market, and you need to change your career in order to pivot back to a career with a salaried income, uh, you can go to Microsoft Word to have your resume helped and, re- and like offer suggestions for your CV. So yeah. they're, they're, um, they're adding in a feature, um, LinkedIn-powered resume assistant for Office 365 subscribers, which is an AI-based helper. AI-based helper. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um, but it looks like they're... Um, they're only rolling it out in several countries, even though you can just change your settings, basically, in, right. order, in order to do it. But it's yeah. cool. It's definitely a cool feature. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's only not beneficial to those people who maybe can't afford their subscription to Office 365 and need a job to do so. You're yeah. not going to be able to do this. But yeah. um, kind of reminds me of back in the day. I'm not sure if any of our listeners or you, Matt, are familiar with an old friend nicknamed Clippy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember Clippy. Oh, Clippy. That Looks like you're trying clip. to build a resume there. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's a good, that's a good one. I, I wonder Clippy. if they're going to fill up something similar here. Yeah. That would be – yeah, they say that you can use their uh, – you can also tap the ProFinder Marketplace to talk to experts. Maybe one of those experts is Clippy. Could be. <laughs> never know. So oh. – and it also looks like you can uh, use this to search for relevant jobs without leaving Microsoft Word. So it looks like Office 365 is trying to become an all-encompassing or 365 degrees of service, if you will. Yeah. I think... <laughs> wow. This is, uh, <laughs> this is really cool, though, because I can't tell you how many friends I've heard saying, like, oh, I need to update my resume. I need to update my resume. I don't really know what I'm doing. Uh it looks like Microsoft's trying to help you out with that, especially when it's connected directly to LinkedIn, which is such a huge portal for 
um, trying to, you know, find a job that you actually like and where employers can go and look for um, skilled potential employees. Uh, this makes a lot of sense to me. I think it's really cool. And uh, you know, I'd, I'd be curious just to see how it works and what kind of, like if, how meaningful the suggestions it gives you are, what kind of formatting tips it can give you. Um, it's definitely going to be interesting to check out. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely going to be keeping an eye on this as a rolled out. And maybe I'll even test it out just to get a firsthand opinion on how this whole thing works. Just because you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to see AI being implemented into something so basic as a as word processing like Microsoft Word. So. If, you're, if you're out there listening and you're interested in being uh, a pro bono administrative assistant for the industry 4.0 group, uh, feel free to submit a resume after using Microsoft's Office 365 tool here, and uh, we'll see what we think. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> we will be one of the experts reviewing those resumes. Experts, quote unquote. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But um, I think we have one more exciting topic to cover yeah, let's, today. Let's, let's blast into that next topic. Yeah, let's, let's uh, take off from this one and land gracefully. Uh, side, side by side into Elon Musk's launching of his Falcon Heavy rocket earlier this week. So this was probably for anybody who hasn't seen the live stream. I encourage you to go and watch the the recording of that stream because it's probably one of the most amazing and epic things that I've seen in a long time in terms of space travel and what this could potentially mean for space travel. Um, so to catch anybody up on uh, the Falcon Heavy and what SpaceX has been doing. Um, the Falcon Heavy is their latest generation of their Falcon rocket line. Um, up until now, they've been launching rockets via their Falcon 9 rockets, which is just a the, your generic um, single, like just a single rocket basically firing. It looks almost like a firework going up into space. And uh, the Falcon 9 is the same thing, but it's got two additional engines on either side of the main core and um, it uses all three of those to carry much heavier payloads into space and this um, also was important to note that it is now the world's most powerful rocket um, so it's got a it's got a heck of a lot of power behind those rockets um, and what made this uh, launch substantial even though it was just a test launch was how Elon Musk approached the test launch and how ambitious of a test launch it was so many people have probably heard and many listeners of our show will recall that um, Elon Musk used a very unique piece of uh, mass simulator which is um, typically a, it's a concrete block loaded loaded in where the, the cargo would be on a test launch to simulate weight and to see how the shuttle handles with a full payload um, but Elon Musk decided not to use a concrete block. He used his Tesla Roadster, um, it fully outfitted with uh, several cameras on a placard of uh, all of the names of the SpaceX employees, um, and featuring a driver known as Spaceman. Um, Starman. Starman, yes. Oh my god, I can't believe I got that wrong. But um, okay. I had like read that name like 75 times before the show, <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, I got this, but... Um, but yeah, he has a, it, it's a hilarious bit of imagery to see this car floating in space, um, just with this driver in it, uh, where the dashboard of the car says, don't panic for 
for anybody who's seen Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, they'll get that reference. Um, but this is this was probably one of the coolest things ever because not only did he launch a car into space and now has the car exposed to the cold vacuum of space um, with a backdrop of Earth to many GIFs in the background and um, going off to Mars and beyond. Um, he also detached both of the second stage rockets and landed them successfully. And what was probably the coolest thing I've ever seen, where you see two giant rockets in perfect synchronicity landing right next to each other on land. I mean, like, I don't know if, if you saw anything that I might have missed, but I was, like, I was stunned when I watched that happen. Basically the same level of mind boggle. Yeah. Uh, this is so impressive in basically every single way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm actually, I actually have video running right now of those two landing together and it's like it's like synchronized dancing or something i don't know how to describe it it's just pretty insane and you know not bad publicity for elon either now he's got his roadster up there floating and i was watching the voids of space i had the I, i decided to put the stream on while i was i didn't see it live but i saw it after the fact that day I was doing some um, just like hobby programming on the side and I was like trying so hard to figure out how to get this function to work the way I wanted it to. And then I looked over and I watched a team successfully reland two second stages at the exact same time on a field. And I was just like, I'm done. I, I can't do this. <laughs> I was just like, all right, this it's officially there. They're just too, there's just so much better than me. <laughs> I was so disheartened, but so inspired at the same time. But um, yeah, they, I, anybody who hasn't seen it, please go online the second you see this, and while still listening to the show, of course, watch the the GIF of Starman floating in space. And um, one of the cooler things was that the the on the way up, the car or SpaceX was blasting um, David Bowie's song. Uh, what was the name of the song? Life on Mars. Right. Um, as the soundtrack during the launch, and once the roadster made it up into space the roadster's radio was playing david bowie's space oddity the whole time granted you won't be able to hear that in a vacuum but <laughs> the fact that the car is still playing space oddity the whole time on its way to its final destination in deep space is hilarious is that on loop <laughs> i think they're just looping it yeah wow <laughs> I wonder how, how long i'll take to drain the battery unless he's got solar power up there keeping that thing going yeah I don't even know. So many it's, questions. It's probably just the battery on the Tesla, I'd imagine. Um, but other payloads that are included with this Tesla was a smaller Hot Wheels Roadster on the dashboard with um, with a tiny Starman inside that car as well as a joke to any potential aliens who may find the car and just, it just let confusion ensue on what that could possibly mean. And also there were, se- there were several uh, – there was a small disc inside the car um, storing science fiction authors Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy, um, as well as a data disc which has some information about humans and human culture, which is pretty fascinating to say the least. I'm like, like it's it's just so cool. Like some people use concrete blocks, but not Elon Musk. He just sends his car up into space. It's like a time capsule. Yeah, and um, the it's also important to note the first. It was a it was a, a huge success the entire uh, launch, aside from the main core, which appears to have fallen off of the drone ship that was sent out to catch it when it landed, 
So that was not recovered, but the two second stages were recovered. Um, right. And also uh, those second stages, I think each had been used once or twice prior to this launch. So they were recycled from earlier launches, yep. which is a testament to SpaceX's achievements in reducing the cost of space travel. I feel like it's like a, a tier of, is tier the right word? It's multitude of success all in one mm -hmm. operation. It's just, they're doing great things. Yeah. And um, they, it, the, as it, the, to detail the flight path, it says, as the upper stage and Roadster climb to an initial orbit as high as 4,000 miles above Earth, um, the, the, the five-hour coast after that, um, then they had planned a burn, which would take it out of Earth orbit, which is an, on an orbit path stretching more than 100 million miles from the sun into the asteroid belt. So I think the original plan was to go from Mars's orbit out that far. Yeah. But they overshot it. They were it was a little too powerful and it's going to pass Mars as planned, but it's going to overshoot the orbit path and land in the asteroid belt. Um and it could get hit by an asteroid there, it could float there for millions of years. The the asteroid belt isn't as densely packed as um imagery of space would like you to believe. The asteroids, I think they said the closest distance between the closest average distance is like ninety is like probably like I think it was in like the millions of miles mark or something like that. Like they're very far apart, but they just happen to be closer than most other celestial bodies. See what happens with time. Yeah, but uh, it could um, it could uh, fly back around, end up on Earth. It could get crushed. We'll see. But either way, um, Starman is on a, a very very long journey through space. <laughs> And it's important to note, anybody who does have the technology to do this, Elon Musk has stated that if you can recover the Roadster, it's yours. So. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. If you've got a rocket that's on its way back down and you want to snag yourself a nice vehicle. Yeah. By all means. And uh, this rocket took off from Cape Canaveral, which was the, uh, the pad that the Apollo moon landing missions, as well as dozens of other incredibly famous space launches have occurred. So. They, they plan on using rockets similar to these to ferry people to and from the moon and ferry heavier cargo to and from space. And I think he had indicated that this, this would happen on either his um, Falcon Heavy rockets or his BFR, which is sometimes translated as the Big Falcon rocket. Definitely Falcon. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a Big Falcon success, this launch. <laughs> all things considered falcon yeah yeah but um it's adver the the launch is advertised using a falcon heavy for 90 million which is by far the cheapest rocket available for the heavy spacecraft of its class which is a third of the price of um united launch alliance's delta 4 heavy um which the department of defense has been known to use for classified missions so it's a coming in at a third of the price is very very competitive and I think we'll solidify SpaceX as the number one uh, retailer of space travel and fairing. So we'll see. It remains to be seen, the impact on the industry. But it's yeah. looking good so far. I agree. Yeah. Um, also, shout out to Irvin, who couldn't be here because I'm sure he would have loved to have rant about this for a long, long time. I'm sure he would. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, regardless, I think if – if that was everything that you wanted to cover on that, I think that's the end of the episode. 
Yeah, I'm all set, Matt. All right. Um, well, as for us, you can find us on many social media platforms. Not in space yet. We're not available there. Not um, quite yet. Yes, but you can find us on Google Play, iTunes, and Twitch, as well as Facebook and Twitter at Industry 4.0. Um, Google Play and iTunes, it's Industry 4.0. Twitch, Facebook, and Twitter is Industry 4.0, all spelled out. You can find us on industry40.podbean.com. That's our home. Uh, feel free to drop there and give us a follow and subscribe to our podcast there. That helps us get attention and helps us deliver more information to you as well as providing more accurate news. Um, feel free to also go on to any one of our platforms and leave us a review or a comment. Send us a message, say hello, anything, anything to critique how our episodes are and offer information on what we can do to improve as a show and get better news to you because that helps us. And also we just like to read the reviews as well. Um, but as, as for that, um, you can find us on, if you don't have any of those services and you've somehow acquired your friend's phone and he has an app that you've never seen before, you can find us on any of the other podcasting apps that offer RSS feeds. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's everything. I don't know if there's anything that you're currently working on that you would like to plug. Um, but for me, uh, I did release a video on my YouTube channel, just my self-named Matt Slavin YouTube channel that um, shows what the Pixel 2's camera, and I think you alluded to that during the show, what it's capable of. And uh, potentially in the future, I plan on doing more videos such as that um, just to showcase what the Pixel 2 is capable of. But cool. How about yourself? Um happy to say i'm finally diving back into some new music nice. feels great and uh, i'd also like to announce for the first time my plan to have the bloopers of i4o which uh i'm hoping to have some out there by summer 2018 so nice they, yeah and, you know this is um we're probably about three months away from our first full year yeah so this is episode 38 and once we get to 52 that'll be our year and that'll be our full year episode which Maybe That's we'll have not... something special planned for it. I'm not sure. Have we missed a week ever? I think we might have missed one in there. Um, I think the only week that we during... missed was during the holiday break. So really, we're looking more like 40 weeks now we've been doing this, including episode zero. Yeah, but I think our first recording date was May 26th. So <sighs> once we get to that point, then we can say successfully that we have done, gone through an entire year. And we'll know if we missed any by that time on what episode number we're on. Yeah, but um, but yeah, we haven't missed much, if anything at all. Um, I know some of us have missed on several episodes, but we've yeah. the episodes themselves have stayed relatively intact. I'm thinking one more kind of thing we could add maybe at the end of the year is a, a recap in tech news for the year. Yeah. Kind of just go through all, everything we've covered, take the highlights, and maybe present that in a, a final year episode. Yeah, definitely. We're definitely going to have something special planned. I'm, I want to make sure that... In, Maybe we'll be able to even get an in-person show together with all of us. So yeah, that would be yeah. that would be nice. But yeah, so that was episode thirty-eight of I4O. Thank you guys for watching, and we will see you guys in the next one. Bye.